Hey, welcome to Answering the Tough Ones. Uh, we are on week four, is the resurrection historical. So um, anybody, just I'm curious, anybody, it's your first time tonight coming? Anybody? Okay, great. We've got seasoned vets in here. So uh, I will say just by a way of reminder that if you, if you have missed one of the classes in the past weeks, then go ahead and uh, feel free to go on the equipping website and uh, they will, uh, uh, those classes have been uploaded. So you can listen to audio and also download the notes from the past classes. I know last week too, a lot of the handouts were jacked up. So if you um, want to, most of those handouts are back there printed correctly. If you want to get those on your, on your way out or go grab them right now, I don't care. Um, so we'll cover, uh, is the resurrection historical tonight? And then next week, uh, definitely, I mean, the, the, we're finishing strong in the last two weeks. Probably the, the most common question that we get um, in, in the apologetics ministry here at Watermark is uh, the question on the problem of evil. It shows up in a bunch of different forms, um, but I don't know, what would you guys say, like, pretty much almost every single Monday that question comes up. Um, among, number, among people, yeah. yeah, it's pretty predominant. So um, we're going to cover that next week. Uh, a guy named Matt Moss is going to come and help uh, teach that, that part, and then we'll also have a panel for Q&A. And then the last week is kind of the one social issue that we chose to tackle this time, and that is um, uh, what is marriage? So what's a definition of marriage? What's the definition of marriage that's always been until about a couple months ago? And then... Um, should same should same sex marriage same sex marriage be permitted? How should the church view this? What should our response be? Um, we we we've been getting that one less and less, I think, because uh, it's kind of the tide has um, been less intense as far as it rolling. Um, but that's still a really important one that uh, uh, that we're going to address in a couple weeks. So. Um, let me introduce our uh, kind of our co-teacher tonight. This is Mark Rose. Mark is uh, teaches at Prestonwood Academy up in Plano, and uh, has been serving on the Great Questions team for about a year now. About a year now. Yeah. Um, so he teaches worldview and does some apologetic stuff with uh, with the kids up there, yep. and uh, got his got his uh, master's degree from Dallas Seminary, and uh, it's just a really sharp dude. So I'm glad that he's joining us tonight. He's going to help teach. And then um, we also have Bobby Crotty down here in the front row. He serves on the Great Questions team as well. And when we finish through our content, he's going to come up and help help out with the uh, panel time. So uh, uh, just by way of reminder as well, as uh, as we go through the content, if you have questions, just write them down. And um, uh, there will be a, an opportunity here in about 45 minutes um, for you to come over and ask the, your question this red microphone is off right now, but we'll turn it on, obviously, <laughs> and uh, and we'll do Q and A with you guys for about thirty minutes. So, if you have a question, write it down, and um, we'll cover those later. All right. Well, let me pray for our time, and then uh, we'll get started. Well, Father, thank you for um, who you are. Thank you that um, at the end of our thinking, and at the end of our reason, at the end of our living, um, at the very center of um, of everything that. Um, at the very center of our lives, um, when we get to the um, end of everything, that what we find there is you. And um, I'm grateful that you are both 
the creator and uh, the source and the sustainer of, of everything that's real. And so um, as we talk through this central act of um, you raising your son, Jesus Christ, from the dead, um, tonight I pray that um, you would give us clear thinking, um, solid reasoning, and uh, that we would walk away just encouraged by the time that we have um, tonight. We, um, we love you, Father. We pray these things to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> so, anybody go to the conference this weekend? Raise your hand. Anybody? All right, sweet. Yeah, good. Good showing. So, um, um, I'll, I will tell you by way of just my own experience, like, uh, did he, was anybody there for the uh, kind of 30 minutes of Q&A we did at the very end? Um, did people stay for that? I'll just be honest, like, I felt really stupid sitting up there. <laughs> it was like me and like Daryl, ba- Dr. Bach, Dr. Lacona, Dr. Bass, Dr. Wallace. I'm like, what the heck am I doing up here? <laughs> Which is why I didn't say anything. Um, but uh, but uh, hopefully that was really good um, for you guys. I hope it was encouraging to you. If for some reason you did miss it, um, that also will be posted online and you can go back, back and check that out as well. Um, but I thought that Dr. Lacona's talk um, was was really was really good. Um, he did the whole cards um, presentation about um, the both the variety of witnesses and also the quality of them, and just to say, hey, if you're going to bet a hand, this is a good hand to bet. You know, when it, as as far as the resurrection is concerned. So you'll get a little bit of a different flavor from us tonight, but obviously it's it's similar material because um, we well that's the material that we have to work with. Um, but we're going we're gonna to ask the question, is the resurrection historical? Is, is this something that, like, um, we're, we're just now, a couple of things we're assuming. We're assuming that Jesus, that, that Jesus actually lived, that there was a man 2,000 years ago who was born a Jew um, to a virgin named Mary. Um, he had a, uh, um, um, he was in a family um, after, after he was born, Mary and Joseph were married, and that he had brothers and sisters by their union. Um, he grew up in Nazareth. Um, he, when he was in his probably early 30s, started a public ministry. And uh, within three years, his public ministry got him nailed to a cross, <laughs> right? So um, this whole idea of the whole, like, Mr. Rogers, um, let Jesus being loving and accepting, and, and by loving and accepting, we mean um, he's, he's, like, really kind to everybody and kind of pats them on the head and has kumbaya sessions, um, you don't take someone who's who's really um, uh, politically correct and 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 uh, assimilated into society and and end up by nailing that person to a tree, right? So um, so Jesus definitely um, uh, was was uh, was teaching things that um, were both. Uh, well, well, what was interesting about it is is that his teaching was drawing in the the outcast and the sinner, and it was repellent to the established religious um, people, so much so that, that they plotted to kill him and ultimately execute him as a common criminal under the Romans. Um, so when, but, but three days later, and this is the um, you know, core central claim of Christianity, is um, that, that this man who was dead, he died on, of, of uh, crucifixion, um, and then was buried, was no longer dead anymore, right? So 
This is the core central claim. The implication of the resurrection is, the, is at the very heart of Christianity. The implication of the resurrection, um, if the, res, if the re- resurrection, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus is true, then it follows that Christianity is true, and all of it, right? Jesus is, is who he said he was. His teaching is validated. Um, he is signed, stamped, declared the Son of God, right? Um, which, in case... Uh, the implication for that is that, hey, if this, if this is actually true, if, if this is a clear, clearly defined, um, uh, uh, clearly defines reality for us, then that shapes everything. It shapes the way that we view the world. It shapes the way that we live. It shapes the way that we interact with first God and then ourselves and then one another. Um, it is the central event in, in, I would, in what I would say in all of reality. So Paul agrees, or, or actually I agree with Paul. I'll say that the other way around. Um, so um, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 to 14, and then 16 to 18, it says this, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sin. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, are, they're also lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we of all people are the most to be pitied. Right. So, in other words, what Paul's argument is, is um, if, Christ, if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, then eat, drink, and be happy for tomorrow you die. There is no hope um, for any kind of future. Right? But Paul's argument is, but the dead are raised, and Christ is raised. And so you have hope. And you also have a way uh, by which you order your life to live rightly with God, to live rightly with yourself, to live rightly with others. So I'm going to go through, um, if you've got your handout, pull out the handout that, that has the Equip logo at the top and says, uh, answer the tough ones, uh, resurrection uh, handout, I think is what it says. Um, and it's got the blank spaces for you to fill in. Everybody got a pen? If you don't have a pen, there should be a little bin back there with one. Hopefully there's some left. If you don't have one, let me know. I'll throw a pen at you. Um, But maybe I'll just hand it to you. Um, Anyway, we're going to go through that. And what I want to do tonight, again, um, since this is an an equipping class and it's the apologetics equipping class, I want to give you something. I want to give you a handle that you can remember. So with with the reliability of Scripture, you remember we went through the five Ps. You guys remember what those are? Profession. uh, well, I can't remember what they are. <clears throat> Profession. Um, uh, what was the second one? Um, not preservation. Production. Yeah, yeah. Um, profession, production, uh, preservation, prophecy, and personal testimony, right? So those are the five Ps. And then tonight, I'm going to give you another kind of acrostic um, that's, that spells heart. So if somebody asks you or challenges you on the resurrection, this is a really easy way to recall five central facts about the resurrection that will, that, that will give you the capacity to answer that person with skill, um, and it's easy to remember. So the first one of those in answering, did Jesus um, rise from the dead? The very first thing that we'll cover is he was honorably buried, or honorable burial is the first uh, little thing for you to fill out on your sheet. H is honorable burial. In all four Gospels... Um, in all four Gospels that we have, um, all of them say that uh, because they were approaching um, the Sabbath, 
It was, a, it was a, Jesus was crucified on a Friday because they were approaching the Sabbath and they didn't have a whole lot of time. Joseph of Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, um, uh, agreed to take Jesus's body and place it into um, a tomb that he owned that, uh, um, that was close to the execution site and nobody had uh, been buried in this tomb before. Those were, those were the uh, facts that we know from the Gospels. Um, we also know from the Gospel of John that Nicodemus was helping Joseph of Arimathea, so Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin, that these, that these men of note, um, these honorable men, were, were, took Jesus' body and with the assistance of his disciples, prepared his body and then laid him in a known tomb. All of the Gospels say that, that both these men and Jesus' disciples and either the temple and the, or the Roman guard, all of them witnessed Jesus' body being placed into this tomb. So it was a known location. People knew where it was, and multiple people knew where it was. It wasn't like it was just Jesus' disciples that knew where it was. It was also the temple guard knew where it was. The Roman guard knew where it was. Jesus' disciples knew where it was. The, the women who followed Jesus knew where it was. Everybody knew where it was, right? It's not like they... Um, one of the uh, interesting uh, deals that a, a lot of skeptics will say, and it's pure speculation, has no um, historical um, uh, backing at all, is they're just like, well, they just kind of tossed Jesus' body into a common grave, um, which was a common practice back in the day for criminals. But every single historical um, data that we have about um, the crucifixion and subsequent burial of Jesus says that Jesus was buried in a known tomb, right? Um, and as we'll see tonight... Um, there's, this is extremely important. All right? I would, I would also um, encourage you to think about this because a lot of times people are like, well, just because the Bible says it. Like, how many of y'all heard that before? Somebody, you'll, you'll give a defense from Scripture and somebody will be like, well, that's, I mean, the Bible says it. Like, who believes the Bible, you know? You got to remember, and I think you probably got this from me last week, right? I mean, the Bible didn't, wasn't always the Bible, right? I mean, in the first century, the Bible was not the 66 books that, that we know of um, today. It wasn't the 39 books, of, I mean, the 39 books of the Old Testament had been canonized by the first century, but I'm talking about the 27 books of the New Testament. They didn't even exist when this happened, right? Um, there was no New Testament. So when Jesus is uh, buried and then, and then people begin to write things about him, they begin to write narrative stories about uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, these are eyewitnesses that are writing um, and sometimes independent from one another. It's, there's independent attestation that these guys are writing um, that are saying, hey, um, I saw this happen, right? Um, and so when, when you think about it, um, a lot of times we think about the Gospels as just fitting into this 66 books that just magically appeared and it came out of thin air and, and, you know, probably there was some kind of conspiracy that made it authoritative and we just kind of believe it. But that's not true, as, as, you, as you heard me teach for freaking almost an hour and a half last week, right? So um, think of the Gospels as, as they originally were, and that is independent documents by eyewitnesses who were writing to say, I saw this stuff happen, right? And, and so... Um, um, as, we, as we reference the Gospels, the Gospels are actually, even though they're in the Bible, they're actually independent of one another, are very good historical, historically reliable um, documents concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, the empty tomb. So the empty tomb is the next deal. So Jesus is honorably buried. 
Um, Joseph of, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, yeah, Joseph of Arimathea and then also Nicodemus, two men of the Sanhedrin, bury him in a known tomb. There's a guard on that tomb. The women um, who followed Jesus were sitting, which were the only ones left at his resurrection. Everybody else bailed, right? Um, they, they sat across in the, in the garden is what the, the text says. They sat across from the tomb in the garden and watched them put Jesus' body into the tomb. And three days later, that same tomb was empty. Right? So, so Jesus' body is put in a known tomb, and then three days later, that tomb is empty. These are, this is just, these are just the historical facts. Mark's going to get up and talk about what does that mean here in a minute. But, and, and frankly, guys, too, this is, these are historical facts that skeptics, agnostics, atheists, they're going to agree with these things. Unless they're like far extreme skeptics that say that Jesus never existed, they're going to agree with, with these because they're, these are incontrovertible. I mean, they, these are just historical facts. That tomb was empty. Um, now, exactly what that means um, is a whole other story, um, but the tomb was empty. He was there, and he's no longer there in all four Gospels. Now, obviously, the Gospels give a certain account. Um, and Again, I don't want to step on Mark's toes, so I'll let him explain it. <clears throat> Thirdly, appearances. Appearances is the A in heart. In Matthew's gospel, the appearances are extensive. In John's gospel, the, experience, the appearances are extensive. Also in Luke's, Mark's, because Mark um, is an interesting gospel. It's probably the first one. In fact, most people agree that it is. Um, but Mark is very choppy, and um, Mark's gospel basically just ends. The women show up at the tomb. He's not there. They see angels who tell him to tell the women that he's risen and that, that he's gone ahead into Galilee and would meet them there and that they should go meet him in Galilee. And then the gospel of Mark is over. That's it, okay? That's why it says Mark, the, uh, the appearances of Jesus are implied because it's implied by Mark's gospel that he is alive and that he would appear to them in Galilee, okay? Um, there, then we also have, as far as appearances go, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6. This is uh, obviously, a, it's a very early letter, probably written in the 50s. Um, uh, it's probably written in the 50s by Paul to the church at Corinth. And he says this uh, regarding this kind of like primitive gospel formula. He says, and starting in verse 3 of, of, of chapter 15, he says, For what I received, um, and, and he's talking about what I received, it's implied from earlier, uh, from the context, from what I, for what I received from the apostles, um, I passed on to you, as of first importance, colon. And now he's about to give you what he's, what he's received. So there's this, there's this gospel formula that, that Paul, writing to the church in Corinth in the mid-50s, is telling them, hey, I received this from the apostles, which implies, hey, this has been around for a while. I'm not making this up. Um, there's, there is an early Christian tradition that, that, uh, that I'm passing along to you, and it's this, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. That's number one. Number two, that he was buried. So Jesus is dead, and he's placed into a tomb. Then number three, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That, so there's the empty tomb uh, portion of it, right? And that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Um, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. 
He's talking about his own apostleship and the vision he had uh, in, in, uh, on the road to Damascus being brought in um, and in such an abnormal way, right? So um, what, Paul is, what Paul is begging, really, and he's opening the door up for, for people who would um, naturally question the resurrection because, frankly, let's be honest, when someone is alive and then they're dead and then the claim is that that person's not dead anymore and they're actually walking around and like, um, not like, not like they were dead and then they were revived from death and they're still really beat up and sick, right? But, but someone who's alive and has a whole new being, has a whole new um, body, has a whole new you know, appearance um, as, as someone who's, um, who's glorified, right? Um, then that begs the question, that I, dude, I got I to gotta see that for myself, right? I'm, I'm not sure that I believe you, right? And so Paul... Um, who is um, uh, Paul who's writing to the church at Corinth is saying, look, um, I'm, I'm not just telling you this. Look, he, he appeared to Peter. He also appeared to the apostles. He appeared, and then he appeared to more than 500 people all at once. Most of them are still alive. What's he, what do you think he means by that? Not a rhetorical question. What do you think he means by referencing that most of the people who saw Jesus are still alive? What's he inviting the church to do? Yeah. Hey, they live over there in Jerusalem, you know? Some of them live in Galilee. They're still alive. Like, don't take my word for it. Go ask them. So one of the other things that a skeptic will sometimes say to you when, when challenging the resurrection is, hey, man, look, I believe, I believe, that, I believe that Jesus' disciples, um, I, I totally believe that they think they saw something. They hallucinated, Right? then, then the, the easy answer to that is, well, hey, real quick, will you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says that he appeared to more than 500 people all at once, some of whom are still alive, but, but some, or most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Will you explain to me that? Because what we know about hallucination is that collective hallucination does not happen, ever, right? Even people who hallucinate in the same situation have different hallucinations about different things. Their minds are projecting things um, to where you compare them and it doesn't make any sense at all. Collective hallucination about a single event does not happen, ever. It's never happened. And, and, and so what Paul is saying is, hey, these appearances actually um, uh, are, are a massive apologetic for people who have not experienced the risen Christ um, for, for themselves. And what Paul is inviting them to do is, is to examine it. You go check it out. I mean, don't take my word for it. Go ask Frank. He saw it. You know, Frank, come here. You know, <laughs> um, I don't know why I said Frank. Frank's not a Jewish name, but I don't know. There may have been a guy named Frank. Um, eh, probably not. Thanks. So. Anyway, <clears throat> um, so that that's that's appearances. And I would just tell him we'll we'll reference First Corinthians fifteen a, a couple more times tonight because it is so important because it's so early and the fact that Paul is is uh, is saying this early Christian gospel formula prior to the writing of the gospels um, and and he's referencing it in such a way that he's he's challenging people not to take his word for it but to examine it themselves and frankly guys I bet you there were some people at Corinth that took him up on it yeah I bet you there were some people at Corinth that were like hey you know I'm going to Jerusalem for this anyway I'm going to go investigate. I'm going to go ask. Um, I mean, we see, we see Luke. That's the entire gospel of Luke. The book of Luke Acts is Luke investigating um, and, and finds it to be uh, verified, multiply, ver- multiple attestation, um, verifying the resurrection. 
Then, fourthly, we have the rise of Christianity. Rise of Christianity. I think in my opinion, if, you know, if you're looking at it from a purely like, skeptical standpoint, I think if you, understand the context of, if you understand the context of what Jesus is, uh, of the, the context Jesus is born into, into the, into the type of people that Jesus is born into, Jesus is a Jew. At the very heart and center of um, the Jewish um, faith tradition is, is this verse. It's called the Shema. Right? It's, it's uh, central to um, you know, the, the Jewish identity. And it, and it says this. It says, Hear, O Israel. Shema is just a Hebrew word that says hear. And so it's the beginning of the, the verse. That's why they call it the Shema. Um, Shema, uh, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. Right? So you have this strictly, strictly monotheistic people who believe that Yahweh is God the Father. They have no concept, and, and frankly, even a, a concept that someone would have of God the Fa- of Yahweh being Father and something else is massive heresy. It's blasphemy. And frankly, they, they would like stone you, they would crucify you for it. And that's what they did. Right? So um, Jesus, this is the people group that Jesus is born into. And yet... What's fascinating about this, and this is what I think, um, uh, this is what I think d- really demands explanation, is that out of this these people group who strictly believe that God is one, out of that people group arises the belief that Yahweh is not only Yahweh the Father, but is also who Yahweh the Son. How in the world did they arrive at that? There's, there's no question that that, that that happened. That is a historical fact. That's the reason that Christianity exists. That's the reason, frankly, that you and I are here right now. Because 2,000 years ago, so a, a group of Jews who knew Jesus intimately um, went from believing that Yahweh was God the Father to believing that God was Yahweh the Father and Yahweh the Son. Um, that... that in my mind, as a skeptic, that, that would haunt me at night. How do, how do you explain that? Um, Lewis, C.S. Lewis has a great little quote. He says, this, he says, what are we to do about reconciling the two contradictory phenomena? He, he's talking about the claim that Jesus made about himself to be God um, and the fact that Jesus was not insane. One, attempts, one attempt consists in saying that the man didn't really say these things, but that his followers exaggerated the story. And so the legend grew up that he had said them, right? This is a common critique. Um, This is difficult because his followers were all Jews. That is, they belonged to that nation, which of all the others was most convinced that there was only one God, that there could not possibly be another. It's very odd that this horrible invention about a religious leader um, should grow up among the one people in the whole earth least likely to make a mistake, to make that mistake. Or such a mistake. On the contrary, we get the impression that none of his immediate followers or even the New Testament writers embrace the doctrine at all easily. Right? So, so here are people that are worship that are good Jews, they're faithful Jews, who are worshiping God the Father. They're, they're performing the sacrifices, they're, they're participating in the synagogue ritual worship of Yahweh. And then something happens. Something happens. And it totally shifts their entire paradigm. 
Um, and, and the question is begged, well, what, what is that? Um, and, and I think, I mean, obviously I'm Christian, so you're going to hear our answer, a Christian answer tonight. Um, but, but even if you're not Christian, you have to deal with that. And I'd, I frankly, I've never heard a good, I've never heard a good uh, explanation for how you get around that. Um, I could understand if it was like India, where you have Hinduism, there's like millions of gods, and Jesus is just another god, right? But, but Jesus is not born Hindu, and he's not brought up in Hindu culture. He's, he's born a Jew, and he's brought up in a Jewish culture where this happens. And out of the Jewish culture, this massive shift takes place. How do you explain that? Anyway, beating a dead horse. No. Well, never mind. I was going to make a joke. It's not really funny. It's funnier in my head. <clears throat> anyway, the last one is this, the transfer of the Sabbath, which kind of uh, goes on the tail of uh, the rise of Christianity. Um, Justin Martyr, who's an early Christian apologist, he lived at the turn of the cent- first century. Um, and and uh, some people, um, uh, well, it's uh, the church history says he was discipled by people who knew the apostles. Um, but Justin Martyr says this, he says, but Sunday is the day on which we hold our, our common assembly because it's the first day on which God, having wrought a change in, in the darkness and matter, made the world. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. Right? So um, he, he's saying um, we hold our assembly um, not just because um, God created the world, but also because he sent his son into the world to redeem it and that the, the, the verifying act of his redemption was the resurrection. So we celebrate Jesus on Sunday. For he was crucified on the day before that of Saturn, which is Saturday, and on the day after Saturn, which is the day of the sun, having appeared to his apostles and disciples, he taught them these things. And now, Justin Martyr is saying, and now I'm submitting that to you for your consideration. Um, And this man's only a, a generation or so removed from the actual event. So, So what do we have? We have honorable burial, empty tomb, appearances, rise of Christianity, and transfer of the Sabbath. There are other theories about what happened and what this means, and that's why Mark is now going to come. Thanks, Nathan. Um, uh, As Nathan mentioned, I'm a teacher, and so I actually don't just teach worldviews. I also teach logic, which is basically... I'm trying to teach ninth graders how to think, so <laughs> that can be a prayer request right now at the beginning of the year. So, the, uh, um, so as much as possible, I always like to try to impart to people ways to process the information themselves rather than just giving you some information. And so before I start walking through different historical explanations that are um, posited, that are given to explain the historical facts that Nathan just went through, I just want to help you think through how do people um, choose the best story in the first place. This is, all, this is what all historians, this is actually not that unfamiliar of a process. If you watch any crime scene investigation or NCIS or, um, you know, any Sherlock, any of these types of shows, it's the same process. It's not, it's not unfamiliar um, uh, whether you go to a history department in a university or whether you're um, uh, in a courthouse. Um, How do people decide what's the best explanation for a set of evidence? Um, And it really comes down to two criteria um, that are are very powerful in and of themselves because everybody has the same two criteria to develop and evaluate their historical uh, scenario with. 
um, no matter what that scenario is. And there's two components. If you flip to the, the next page on the handout uh, um, that had heart on the front, um, the one with the pictures on it, it has the five pictures of the evidence, um, these two um, <clears throat> tools that you have to evaluate historical explanations are, the first one is scope. It's called um, historical scope. In other words, how well does it account for all of the evidence, right? So if you're watching a crime show, you've got to account for all the little pieces of evidence, right? Isn't that how they keep you hanging on until the end is they leave that one little unexplained or they think they have one and then new information's um, introduced later on. Because this is something a good, um, a good hypothesis, a good theory, a good explanation should do. It should account, if it is true, it should account for all the evidence that you have. Um, and so that's the first criteria. The second criteria is just explanatory power. In other words, okay, you explained it, but did you explain it well? This is kind of like for, for me in my context, right? A kid coming and saying, I don't have my homework because my dog ate it, right? So that's, you know, a little cliche, right? So right off the bat, that doesn't have a whole lot of power, much less the fact <laughs> that I could bring up to them, you have online homework, what are you talking about, right? It, it reduces the explanatory power even more so, right? And so everybody uses this criteria. So I want you to just see what you can do based on the evidence that you were just given by Nathan. I'm going to give you a little bit of time. You can talk about with the people next to you if you want to, um, or just think about it yourself, whichever you prefer. But Try to come up with maybe a different explanation other than the, resur- the actual physical resurrection of Jesus that you might, um, might be able to explain the, uh, the evidence that he just presented to you. That's why I gave you the little pictures to remind you what the evidence is in general. And, uh, and just try to come up with alternate explanations. I'll give you a couple of minutes just to think about it, to talk about it, and process the, the uh, information a little bit. Okay, hopefully, hopefully that's enough time to give you, give you a little bit of time to think and, and just think through, um, you know, your own, how can you start putting the pieces together? Because honestly, everybody's in the same situation as you. Maybe they've done a little bit more work, right? Maybe they've um, uh, done, dug into a little bit more research, but like Nathan was saying, these are, these are five key facts. I mean, these, these are historical facts you have to account for, and everyone has to be able to account for them. And so what we're going to do now is j- simply run through the predominant, um, I think it's safe to say, the predominant explanations for these facts um, uh, particularly including the resurrection, the physical resurrection, but particularly looking at those that try to exclude the physical resurrection. So um, the, if you'll look on the next page, um, on the front of the next page under resurrection theories, the first one's the stolen body theory, okay? So uh, <clears throat> the stolen body theory is uh, certainly the, the earliest. This was mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, which is, which is focused on a Jewish audience because it's explained that the Jewish authorities um, were um, immediately made this claim. And actually, they say, the gospel says that they paid off the Roman guards to corroborate that were guarding him, that knew that the disciples didn't come and take him. Um, uh, they paid them off so that they would say that he was taken. 
Um, because this was the whole reason they killed Jesus, if you'll remember, is they didn't want to lose their place in the nation, right? They didn't want to lose their political power. Um, and they were worried, and Jesus was taking away from that in his popularity among the people and in his and in this issue of him being claiming to be the Messiah. And so um, they killed him so that people wouldn't follow him anymore. So if the, so the, the way the Gospels present it, um, they develop this stolen body theory to uh, try to continue to um, hold the same position, that Jesus was nothing special, that he was a heretic, he wasn't someone to be followed. Um, for each of these... I'll just kind of run through a quick evaluation of the, uh, the scope and the power in relation to each of the different facts. And so when we come to the idea of burial, this theory explains the, honorable, um, the death and burial of Jesus because it says he, he did die and he was buried. Um, it also explains the empty tomb um, in the sense that Look, there, there's no longer a body in the tomb at the end of this theory, at the end of, of these happenings. Uh, the problem is, um, it doesn't really in, uh, it doesn't even attempt, honestly, to explain the appearances afterwards, um, uh, which, which we just talked about. It, do, it really doesn't, um, uh, you might just have to say, oh, well, they were lying or something to that. The disciples were lying after that or something to the effect of that. But uh, it doesn't even attempt to explain it. So it, it falls outside of the scope of the theory. Uh, then also the rise of Christianity, which is, which is primarily predicated, primarily based on the transformation of the disciples. If the disciples stole him, why would they do what they did, which, was, which laid the foundation for the rise of Christianity? Why would they turn against, uh, like Nathan talked about, turn against their, their own religious tradition um, in a very fundamental way? Why would they, and then ultimately, how did they die? They, by church tradition, only one of them didn't die by martyrdom. That is, someone actively killed them because of what they were professing about Jesus. Um, People die all the time for false things, but they don't die for things that they know are false. Um, not intentionally, right? You know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't put themselves on the line over and over again. Um, they, they wouldn't have done what actually laid the foundation for the rise of Christianity if they knew that it was a lie, that he, his body was simply stolen and he didn't raise from the dead. And then you know, I, I'm probably being really generous giving them a check on this, but if they get away with the lie, I guess that makes sense that they would continue, they could possibly continue to lie to shift the Sabbath. Once again, though, why would they go against their own religious tradition? Why would they be transformed? Because the picture that the Gospels paint of them is fairly timid, um, uh, certainly scared after the death of Jesus. And so they become very bold, notably bold among the Jewish leadership. Um, afterwards. So uh, this, that's the stolen body theory. Um, <clears throat> the next theory is the swoon theory. Okay? The swoon theory is simply this, that uh, he was crucified but not dead. So <clears throat> he went through crucifixion. They were um, 
uh, he was mistakenly pronounced dead. And they kind of appeal to you as, as in our modern context of, look, sometimes doctors, right? You can go watch some TV shows, you know, incredible stories of the ER or whatever. And they think someone's dead and they end up in the morgue and then they come back to life, right? Well, they didn't really come back to life. They were never dead. So if that can happen with modern science, how could that not happen with Jesus? How can you say that for sure that wouldn't have happened? Um, uh, the, uh, the issue with the swoon theory is, um, and they, they just have to explain away. And John, he specifically says, look, the, um, uh, they, they actually try to pick up on this in, um, uh, in, in the gospel of Mark, where it talks about how Jesus died really quickly. Like everybody was surprised he was, he was dead so quickly. So they go, oh, look, see, he was dead so quickly because he wasn't really dead. Um, the, when they get to John, they say, well, John just fabricated that, uh, that, that spear in the side thing to make people think that he's dead. The, the biggest weakness of this is, um, it is universally accepted among New Testament scholars that he died. Like, Literally, the only people who deny it are the people that Nathan was talking about who are mythicists, you might call them. That is, Jesus was a myth. He was totally not a historical person at all, which they just don't have academic support for that. If, if we want to, you know, if our culture wants to um, elevate academics, right, and, and doctorates and, and expertise, they don't have any of that. Uh, good historians... Um, uh, uh, particularly one who's um, not a Christian at all, a guy named John A.T. Robertson, uh, Robinson, said it's the best attested fact about Jesus that he died. And so the, the idea that he didn't die is just, you know, and even on a very practical level, the guys who did crucifixions, right? This was their job, right? These Roman soldiers. What was their job? to kill people. That was their job. They, in a very painful and excruciating way, but to kill people, it was their job. They didn't just, whenever, according to John, they didn't just wait and go, huh, he looks dead. He must be dead. Let's take him down. They put it, the reason they um, stuck him in the side is a death blow. They could stick up through the lungs into the heart. You don't live after that. This was their job. And so they're saying that uh, there's no recorded history that would suggest to us that they were not good at their job, uh, that anyone was crucified and then happened to get down, right? Um, happened to end up okay. Um, so <clears throat> the burial, it, it's kind of, you see, it gets the scope, right? He was buried because they thought he was dead. And they say, oh, it was so cool in the tomb that it kind of revived him and woke him up. But really, the idea that he was buried but not dead isn't very powerful. You could say maybe it's theoretically possible, but not very powerful. It, it explains the empty tomb because he was dead, so he could just get up and walk out, right? Um, uh, to a certain extent, it explains the appearances. But um, in another very fundamental way, and this is... Um, so he appeared, but then he was just a man still, right? None of the extra characteristics that the gospels seem to give him, that the disciples seem to give him, that caused the rise of Christianity, right? He's just another guy. And where does he go? 
Does he just eventually go kill himself in the middle of nowhere, throw himself into a sea? Because the disciples said, we watched him ascend into heaven, right? Um, And so you still have a whole lot of loose ends in that regard um, to clear up. And then the Sabbath, once again, you know, um, how is he going to convince this Jewish audience to move the Sabbath, you know, to, to transfer the day of uh, worship and honor um, if he's just a man still um, um, before the, uh, or after this crucifixion that just made it out alive? Um, not to mention the fact, look, if he's, um, and Nathan kind of made mention of this, if he is, so he got revived, he is not in good shape, <laughs> Right? Like, he's not in good shape. If he took a, he, it says, he, put your hand in my side, put your hand in my wounds, right? Those, those wounds would have been healing by that point, right? That's gonna, that would be a mucky mess, right? That, he's not going to be well, even if, if he, when it describes the beating, right? If you watch The Passion of the Christ, then maybe, that's a, maybe that movie took it a little over the top, but probably not very far, Right? He's not in good shape, and that's not how they described him. And certainly that wouldn't be transformative. You know, you'd be like, dude, I'm so glad you're alive. You are jacked, though. We got to get you better. We got to, you know, um, we got to figure out what we can do. Get some olive oil on this guy, right? Because he's just not going to be well if he is. And so that doesn't explain the immediate appearances that happened, because it's a 40-day period that all the appearances were supposed to take place before his ascension. And so the next theory is the imposter theory. Um, there are some different ways um, uh, to take this. There's a, a guy named uh, Robert Gavin who has posited this. He had a twin. So it was Jesus' twin brother. Um, uh, the, that's one angle on it, and I'll kind of address that first of all. First of all, this is not an explanation. This is introducing new facts. That's not, you know, that's, that's introducing new facts, not an explanation. Um, um, <clears throat> that's not the process that we're actually supposed to be going through. Uh, we're supposed to be trying to explain the facts we have, not just introduce facts with absolutely no historical corroboration. No one said that, right? Um, the, um, the other source that you might hear this from is, this is very common in the, in the Muslim world. Um, because in the Quran, it says that they think they crucified him, but they did not. Someone else took his place. It's kind of vague in the way that it words it. Um, uh, this just comes down to, okay, if we just want to look at this historically, you can trust a document that was written around the time within, um, you know, maybe 30 to 50 years of the event, or within 600 years of the event, which is when the Quran was written down. And, and uh, if I can add some real quick, Mark, yeah, too. Yeah, go the, ahead. Um, and the, you'll typically hear from uh, Muslims as well that Judas actually is the one who died on the cross. And, and I think that gives you a little bit of insight into the, the cultural norms that are going on at the time. Because for a Muslim, for a righteous man to die is like abhorrent to them. And so the traitor is the one who should die. So Jesus doesn't actually die. Judas, Judas dies in his place, which I think gives you uh, insight into um, 
the, the first century as well, the fact that the righteous man has died, is, it's a shocking yeah. thing. So anyway. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, so uh, the burial, I mean, I guess someone would be buried. Um, <clears throat> the empty tomb, it doesn't explain that at all because they're saying someone really died and just stayed there. Um, uh, <clears throat> it doesn't even attempt uh, the appearances, kind of, but you can't, I mean, if you've had a friend that you've spent three years with, basically every day of your life for three years, and then suddenly there's a switcheroo. I mean, there was like a, what was the, the, magi- the magic movie that was um, like this? Um, oh my gosh, The Illusionist, was that the one it was? Prestige, yeah, The Prestige. Yeah. You can go watch it, I mean. You don't need to, but <laughs> I, I'm not saying it's spiritually edifying in any way. But the end of it is that like the, the switch on the end of the movie is the, the one guy, they were so good at the magic because he had an identical twin brother. But throughout the, throughout the whole movie, his girlfriend just thinks he's like bipolar because, man, they just act different, right? So if you've been with this guy for three years, like you think you'd notice if his twin brother all of a sudden showed up, or you think you might know that his twin brother, that he had one, right? You've met his mom many times, right? Um, uh, you spent a lot of time with him. It doesn't really explain the rise of Christianity. Once again, where does he go after this? He's just a, he's just a guy. Um, uh, and then the Sabbath, it's kind of the same level. Just know you know, even if you want to give them that it kind of explains some of the scope, there's no power to the explanation. Um, no explanatory power. Uh, the next one is the hallucination theory or the vision theory. This one is important because it is the most common, most popular among academics. Okay? In, the, in historical academia, when they're trying to explain um, this event, this is the most widely accepted explanation. This is the best they got, okay? Um, a guy named Gerd Ludemann, um, who is one of the top 10 scholars in this area, um, not a believer, doesn't believe in the resurrection, but he still says, look, the appearances are absolutely historically certain. They were just visions, okay? So Nathan kind of mentioned this before, right? Uh, this gets back to what's the, so this explains the burial, right? Um, it doesn't even attempt to explain the empty tomb. You just, it, that just kind of gets left by the wayside, right? Is there an empty tomb or not? Um, for the appearances, so the idea is whether it's the grief that was onset that caused them to, um, uh, the emotional distress that they were feeling, which, is, which goes in line with, the, uh, with human experience and the records that we have, that they were under a lot of emotional stress. But they say, look, that emotional stress caused them to be delusional to the point that they saw them, right? Uh, so that they, they thought they saw him, even though they didn't. Um, the problem is the nature of hallucinations, right? Um, you don't have group hallucinations. That's not how hallucinations work. Um, uh, um, I don't know of any, I can't think of, I think you mentioned this, I can't think of any historical, even two people sharing a hallucination. Um, uh, the, I actually have, you know, um, uh, mental illness runs in my family. I have an uncle with schizophrenia, and what he's dealing with 
I have never interacted with myself, right? Because when he has those struggles, they are, t- they are his own, right? Um, each uh, hallucination is your own. Um, the uh, the uh, spirit walkers, you know, out smoking peyote out in New Mexico, right? They go and they have their own spirit walk. They don't spirit walk. I mean, they're in the same tent together, but they ain't on the same walk, right? Because the hallucinations are different. That's just not how they work. Um, and so it's really a weak, weak explanation. Um, you know, it's that same weakness causes it to be weak in the sense of, um, explaining Christianity, especially when, whenever you're getting to, you know, that, that's where that first Corinthians passage becomes so important in that, look, you, he says 500 people saw it at the same time. That's just, um, that was the power of the movement, um, was the, the number of people who had seen it. And so, um, it's something that sets Christianity apart, so it's kind of weak to disregard it. Um, then once again, the Sabbath, it just doesn't have a whole lot of explanatory power. Um, to drive them in this regard. The last one is spiritual resurrection theory. And I'll go over this quickly because um, John Nobinick Crossan is a, is a big name for this. This really comes out of liberal Christianity um, um, in the 1800s. Um, and it was, it's really motivated. It's, you know, there's a variety of different ways. It's that it was spiritual. So maybe the body stayed there. Maybe the body was taken up by God, maybe, but it was just this spiritual being. Um, um, early Gnosticism um, was like this, um, actually something called proto-Gnosticism, so like this idea that the physical was bad and the spiritual was good, was actually something that John, was, John himself particularly in 1 John is fighting against, and he does it in, in the Gospel of John. That's why he makes emphasis in his stories to say, and then Jesus ate some fish. And then when he called us over, what this depicts, when he called us over, right? When he appeared to us on the shore, he had fish going and we all had breakfast. And in 1 John, he says, look, anyone who says he didn't come in the flesh is a liar and the truth's not in them. Right? So this was something they were dealing with in some way. But the reason people have done this in a modern sense is... um, is the same reason liberal Christianity developed in the first place, which is it was a response to criticism. Um, that is, the, um, uh, the attack on Christianity using science and historical evidence and trying to disprove it. What liberal Christians, the, the reason they ended up where they did for the most part is it started out, they were trying to protect Christianity, they thought, from this criticism from being proven historically false. And so what they did was they tried to come up with ideas that were not falsifiable. In other words, you, you couldn't prove them wrong. To protect, they thought they were protecting Christianity, and really they were doing it a great deal of harm. And we get to experience the result of this um, uh, on a continual basis, the harm that they've done, that, that, that they did in those attempts. And this is really a, another example of this. So it explains the burial it doesn't explain the empty tomb. You know, it's very ad hoc. It's, they're just coming up with a ex- quick explanation. Um, the appearances, um, kind of, it just contradicts the records that we have of those appearances. Um, uh, the rise of Christianity, right? This is something like, oh, he's, he's in our hearts, right? As long as he's in our hearts, right? You see this in lots of movies these days. You live on forever in our hearts. That's what it means that Jesus was resurrected. Um, 
that's just not that powerful um, to cause the effects that, that it did. And so when you come to the theory of the actual physical resurrection, you realize, man, it explains the fact in scope and power historically. And what it makes you realize is the, because you see, um, you see the idea of Jesus' resurrection, look at the book of Acts. It's continually, this is the sticking point for Paul when he's interacting with the Jews and uh, the Gentile audiences. Um, but it's about the presuppositions about life. It's about the assumptions about how things work. That, man, every time I've seen someone die, they don't come back alive, right? Um, um, but not about actual facts of the case. The facts of the case point um, pretty strongly towards the physical resurrection. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I'm just going to talk through just a little bit, and then, uh, Bobby, you can make your way up here. Um, if you'll yeah. Yeah, clear out a spot for him, and then here's your microphone. Um, and then also... Um, if somebody will turn the red microphone on, maybe if somebody has a question, you can already you can start moving over there, and uh, turn the red mic on. We always got to have a, somebody who's brave and will actually ask a question. Um, otherwise, I'm just going to keep talking. <laughs> um, so if you have a question, please feel free to go uh, move to the microphone. Um, but uh, what what did Jesus's resurrection mean? So um, I, I think we've given really good, solid um, evidence that, that Jesus actually physically, bodily rose from the dead. But what exactly did that mean? And I think for, for the earliest uh, disciples, um, it, it first of all meant that, that he's the promised son of God. And, and by son of God, I mean their, their idea of Messiah. Um, just like I said, you, you have to realize um, Jesus is born into a Jewish culture, and that Jewish culture had a very specific worldview. And that worldview hinged on when Yahweh would send his Messiah to set everything right. Um, in their mind, the question of who and even what was already answered. It was God, and he was going to set things right. Um, but the question of when and how, those were big questions for them. And the resurrection answered, definitively answered those questions, but it, but it answered them in a way that they did not expect. And so they began to realize, as, as Jesus um, raises from the dead and then is appearing to them and, and continuing to teach them and then ascending um, in, into uh, to the, the right hand um, of the Father that, that actually, whoa, um, the Messiah just showed up. Like we saw him. He was here. And, he's, and he's, the, all of history is hinging and turning on, on, uh, on the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead. Secondly, he is the rightful son of God. So yeah, you remember the story um, in, the, uh, in the Gospels where they, they say, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus says, well, show me a coin, right? Um, and, and he says, whose inscription is on the coin? And it's implied, well, no, it's not implied. They even say it. They're like, it's Caesar's inscription. It's, it's, and the Caesar at the time was Tiberius. So it would have said, it would say, it would have said uh, uh, Tiberius Caesar, son of Caesar Augustus, um, son of God. That's what the inscription said on it. It said that Tiberius Caesar was a son of God because at the time, the Caesar who followed um, uh, another Caesar would declare the previous Caesar God, and then he became, um, by uh, consequence, a son of God. And, and so whoever sat on the throne in Rome was considered the son of God. And Jesus 
is showing through the resurrection that actually you guys think that Caesar is the king of the world, but he's not. I am, right? And so he is showing by, in fact, that's exactly, you guys remember the early fish symbol that the Christian used called an ichthus? You guys remember this? Um, the ichthus is just a Greek abbreviation that literally just means Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? So what the early Christians are doing, and they're doing it very forcefully, is saying he's not only our Messiah, he's actually, uh, uh, the throne in Rome belongs to him. He has dominion over everything, right? So the scope of their belief about who Jesus is because of the resurrection gets vastly expanded. He's not just the king of Israel, he's the king of the world. And then lastly, and I think this is what um, probably was the hardest pill for them to swallow, but obviously, and I think the reason the rise of Christianity did occur, is because of the force and the effect of of, uh, the resurrection from the dead, and that is that Jesus is the embodied Son of God. He is the divine one. Um, He shares the same essence as the Father. He is worshipped appropriately as such. Um, The Father is Yahweh, and Yahweh is also the Son. And out of the Father... Out of the Father's relationship with the Son also is the Spirit. And so um, Yahweh is, is three um, persons distinct from one another who all share the same divine essence. Um, and thus, I mean, that's why I'm just like, still, how in the world do you make up something like Trinitarianism? How do you, especially coming out of this people group, that's least likely to make that type of mistake? That itself demands explanation. Um, so Jesus is the, the Messiah the um, Son of God, the King of Israel. He is the rightful Son of God, the King of the world, and He is the embodied Son of God. He is Yahweh in the flesh. Crazy, right? But if Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, but, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruit, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. After he has destroyed all dominion, again, all the Caesars, all the competing kingdoms who would say, no, Jesus, you're not the king, I am. And Jesus is saying, okay, I'm calling you to repent from that. I'm calling you to turn from your traitorous, from your treason Um, from your rebellion, and I'm calling you back into the kingdom that is rightfully mine. But if you will not come, then I will destroy your dominion because it's a false one, right? Um, I I don't want to do that. I want you to repent, but if you don't, I'll destroy you. Um, I'll destroy your dominion. I'll I'll destroy your authority. I'll destroy your power. Um, you, You may sit in a dominant position for now, but I'm coming and I will destroy um, your dominant position because it's mine. It belongs to me. And for Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Right? Um, So I'm still waiting for people to ask questions. (laughs) If you have a question, please move over there. Um, Otherwise, I'm just going to keep talking. (laughs) So, all right, sweet. Turn on, uh, you'll have to turn it on. Um, there's, there's a little on button on the front. Switch it up. There you go. Give it a second. Wait for it to turn green. And it turned green. Hello? There you go. What's your name? Caroline. Caroline, sweet. So I have kind of maybe two or three part question, but um, what would you say to somebody who asks or says, well, 
What it, did, did, was Paul the one who said that more than 500 people saw yeah. Jesus? Yes. Yep. So what if this, somebody was thinking, well, um, you know, how do we know that number is really accurate? Did he actually talk to all 500 people? Are there other, um, other like, historical writings that, that from other people saying, you know, I wrote this down, I really did see Jesus sort of thing? My other part of my question is, um, what's the probability, and it's probably not very high probability, but what's the probability that um, <clears throat> kind of in relation to people saying they saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, that Mar- or Matthew, when he was writing his gospel, kind of read Mark's gospel and said, oh, yeah, that sounds good, and then Luke read Matthew and Mark's and John, even though he was with Jesus, kind of read there sort of yep. thing. Yep. Good. You want to cover part of it? Yeah, I'll do Paul first. Yep, I'll take the um, second one. Bobby, you can fill in, whatever. So the, um, the issue around Paul is that um, his documents are considered the most, especially there's, there's four of his letters that are considered the most certain historically. They, they feel very confident. These are people who would say, you know, half the New Testament is not was not actually written by who they said it, it was written by. But Paul is, Paul is very clear, especially in, in, in 1 Corinthians falls in that category mm-hmm. of um, these most certain documents. And he's the most interesting case because um, he continually talks about how um, he changed. And so he was the persecutor, right? He was, he didn't, he wasn't just kind of, hey, checking out Jesus or, hey, whatever, I don't care. He was the, he was the guy getting legal documents, going and searching, you know, uh, in, in his conversion experience by, his own, by um, uh, Luke's account in Acts, um, he was going to try to get them so he could bring them back and punish them or kill them. And then he converted. And so it's this issue of, well, why is Paul, of all people, why change and then start lying? What did he gain from that? He get, you know, because that's how, that's how you have to think through, right? Like, if you're going to posit that someone's lying, you got to, there's people lie for reasons normally, right? Um, he didn't, you know, read 2 Corinthians. He'll, he'll give you a list of what he got for his faith in Christ and for pursuing Christ. Mm-hmm. He got shipwrecked a couple times. He got beaten a couple of times. He got stoned. They thought he was stoned to death one time. And so it's they're, when they're claiming, uh, this is always something that's good to remember. If they're claiming that Paul lied, they have to defend that claim too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so... In that scenario, their, their claim that he would have lied about that is much weaker than the assumption that he would have been telling the truth, than all the, the idea that he would be telling the truth yep. um, in, in that regard. Not that it all just comes back to Paul, but Paul is a, is a particularly strong case that how does one who is the persecutor become yep. one, and, and in that, in 1 Corinthians 15 even mentions, look, I'm an untimely born. I'm this abnormal one. Yep. Um, yeah, and I would say, too, you asked about what, are, what other historical documents are there, um, Matthew, Luke, and John. <laughs> I mean, again, a lot of times we don't think of those as historical documents with any kind of 
reliability that would go along with them. And yet, I mean, the, I mean, when you're talking about um, when these documents were written and by whom they were written, I mean, you're talking about um, either eyewitnesses or people who interviewed eyewitnesses to write this account that, that dates extremely close to the actual historical event. You don't get anything like that else anywhere even close to that in antiquity. And so you have a really strong... Um, I, you have really strong eyewitness accounts in those three Gospels that say he appeared. Um, and, and then, like I said, the Mark's Gospel, it, it's implied that he appeared to his disciples. Regarding the source material for um, Mark being uh, used by Matthew, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that the, the, the consensus among New Testament scholars today is that um, what you have is a two-source authority for Matthew and, uh, and Luke. And that is that Matthew and Luke both use the gospel of Mark um, independent of one another and that Mark's source or the source behind Mark was the apostle Peter. So, Pete, so Mark, is, um, uh, Mark is, is drawing from Peter and we get this um, from other people. Um, uh, the primary source is a guy named Papias who's, who's an early church um, father who was discipled by um, or... Um, potentially discipled by the Apostle John. So these are guys that know the apostles, and they're the ones that are writing down to say, Mark drew his information from Peter. So that's how we know. Um, So Mark drew his information from Peter, and then Matthew and Luke, both independent of one another, used Mark in their Gospels. Um, But what's interesting is, is is there is content that's specific to Matthew that's not in Luke or Mark. And there's content in Luke that's specific to Luke that's not in Matthew or Mark. And there's content um, in both Matthew and Luke that's not in Mark. <laughs> now you're like, what? <laughs> so um, so there's, there's content in Matthew and Luke that, that are uh, specific to them. And there's also content in Matthew and Luke that's shared by them but is not found in Mark. And, and so there's, there's really three sources in, in those Gospels. And, and a lot of people call that, sh- that shared material between Matthew and Luke that's not found in Mark, they call it Q, which is a, a, from the German word quella, which just means the source. And, and what New Test- what's consensus among most New Testament scholars is that Q was a, uh, an early collection of primitive writings of the sayings of Jesus written down by the early church um, and, and I, I mean, I know some New Testament scholars that believe that Q began during the life of Jesus. As Jesus is walking and talking, his disciples are like, whoa, he just said that. Like, we got to write that down. And kept a collection of sayings of Jesus that survived, um, not in its own gospel, but it made it into uh, the synoptics, um, uh, into Matthew and Luke. So I hope that helps answer your question I think the, the basic answer to your question is there's multiple attestation in all synoptic gospels, um, both from Mark, who's, who's sourced by Peter, from Matthew, who's an eyewitness, from Luke, who's interviewing eyewitnesses, and from the Q source that's using the community of primitive Christians who, collect, who kept a collection of sayings from Jesus. I'll add uh, just two quick things. One, the, the specific number of 500, so Christ appeared to Paul after uh, he appeared to other people. And so he would have heard that number from someone else. And so um, he's kind of saying a lot of people there. And um, he says more than 500. So he's not giving an exact number there. But those people, he said, a lot of them are still alive. So it's 
historically verifiable or verifiable at the time. Uh, it's also verifiable by people who were um, just not so much for this specifically, but the things that Paul said, um, it's verifiable by enemies of Christ. So if, if in any of the Gospels or in Acts or in any of the letters, if someone had said something that was just totally off the wall, the people who were against Christianity could have just come and said, no, I was there, I, I saw it happen. That's not what happened. So um, that's another strong evidence is that uh, everything they said, it wasn't just like a, hey, this thing that we can't really prove, just believe it. It was something that was provable then uh, and could be verified and uh, by both the people who were eyewitnesses there and Paul offered, hey, go talk to them as well as people who are against it. So everything that, that was said had an opportunity to be countered at that point. That's good. Next. What's your name, man? You can, yeah, pick it up. It's fine. It's Michael. What's up, Michael? Um, my neighbor uh, said that the Romans took meticulous records and that uh, Mary and Joseph are in the Roman census and that there would be a, an account of Jesus as well and maybe even a record of his crucifixion, crucifixion. and um, I haven't verified that myself, and I was wondering if, if, uh, if, there are, if that exists. Not that I know of. I mean, I, I, now, the, the, the Romans took a census, but even at the census they took when uh, Quirinius was the governor of Syria under Caesar Augustus, um, that, that was taking place uh, but before Jesus was born, I mean that's that's why um, the the census is taking place, which is forcing um, uh, Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem in the first place. So um, I, I'm not sure that they would have registered their um, uh, their firstborn son. But even then, like Palestine, as far as I know, and, and I don't have extensive knowledge on Roman record record keeping, but as far as I know, I mean Palestine is like the armpit of the Roman Empire, like. Um, you, we we would not expect to know from Roman records that Jesus existed, yeah. which is why yeah. some Roman historians, <clears throat> the fact that they do end up recording on his life later, is really fascinating. Um, yeah. Go ahead. And that, it, it relates to one thing we were talking about before. Like when you really get into ancient sources, you realize there's not a whole lot of records of anything. <laughs> Like, the New Testament has 5,000 handwritten copies, and that's head and shoulders above any, any written source from the ancient world. Um, uh, and so you can't ever work backwards and say, oh, we should have expected to have some note. Um, the, the, a, a good example of this is, um, uh, especially during this critical, this, this period of, of criticism of the New Testament and the Old Testament in the 1800s that I was talking about with that spiritual resurrection, they, they said, well, in all our archaeological digs, we've never found any evidence of the Hittites, the Hittite people. And it's clearly mentioned in the Old Testament in, various, in a variety of different times. So the Old Testament must be bunk until they found evidence of the Hittites. And they found treaties. Now we've got treaties between the Hittites and the Egyptians and stuff. You, you can't work backwards like that because archaeology is so sparse yeah. by its very nature. So much of it got destroyed. They, didn't, they weren't worried about keeping track of everything for 2,000 years, especially considering what they were writing on. They were writing on papyrus yeah. or animal skin. Um, and so it's, that's part of actually the... Um, 
the attestation to the New Testament and the Old Testament that people took such good care of it because they didn't take that good a care of any other written documents. Yeah, and there's, uh, so we do have an independent Jewish source in Josephus that, that verifies the identity of Jesus and the fact that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He's not Christian. He has no bone in the fight mm-hmm. other than just to report, hey, that happened. Um, and then, and then uh, a handful of Roman historians as well um, uh, are also attesting to the fact that there is a tribe of people who followed after a man. I mean, the, mis- this, the spelling of it is, varies. Some of it's Christus, um, uh, Christus um, these followers of Jesus, which would beg the question, hey, if this Roman historian knows about the Christians, where did they come from? Um, so... Um, we do have an independent attestation of Jesus' life separate from the Gospels, um, but I would also ask your friend straight up the second Columbo question, and that is, um, how did you come how did you come to believe that? Like, mm-hmm. what's your evidence? Yeah. That's a fair question. Because they really don't. He's making they a claim, and I promise you he doesn't have evidence for it. Yeah. Go, go check out... Thank you. Go check out Dan Wallace's talk, uh, any of his talks probably, but especially the uh, <laughs> the one from this past weekend. Yep, um, yeah, Saturday. He talked about uh, the average uh, time to the first manuscript that we have of ancient authors, like time from when they wrote to the time we actually still today have a manuscript. The average time for authors is about 1,000 years, but for Christian sources, it's uh, we have stuff back to within... Decades yeah. of uh, when these people actually lived. So yeah. uh, check that out. He has a ton of figures and kind of stats in there, and so that's some good kind of ammunition. Yep. Any other questions? Going once. Going twice. Sold. Okay, well, let me uh, close our time, and, and uh, I would just tell you this. Um, we, we've talked about the concentric circles. Um, of when, when, when you're defending the Christian faith, a lot of times people are going to try to take non-essentials and put them into that, that center circle, um, and, and you, just have to be, you just have to be wise. Be gentle with people, but also just let them know, like, hey, your objection is real, and it's valid, but it does not belong in the center Right? And so in the center belongs the, the triune nature of God, the fact that God is Father, Son, and, and Spirit, three distinct persons who all share the same essence. So we affirm that God is three persons, one, and there is one God. Right? That belongs in the center. Um, that, that, uh, um, that man has sinned and rebelled against God. That belongs in the center. That Jesus was born of a virgin. That belongs in the center that Jesus was the God-man, that he was 100% God, 100% man. Um, he's not God and man, he's the God-man um, and shares 100% of, of both humanity and deity. Um, salvation by grace through faith alone is in the center. Um, uh, the, and then ultimately, I think, um, the, the one that's in the center and of all the ones that are in the center, it is the center one, is the resurrection. And so um, as you're defending the faith, as people attempt to deflect and take you elsewhere, just remember, and I promise you they will, right? Just remember, um, try, do, do the best you can to address their, their issues, but to do so in a way that's saying, hey, you're asking a great question, but that's like, a, that's like secondary or, or 
third or fourth down the row, right? It's, it's, it's not central to what Christianity believes. However, the resurrection is. Have you considered that Jesus was honorably buried, that three days later his tomb was empty, that he appeared to Peter, to the 12, to 500 people, um, more than 500 people all at once? Um, how do you explain that? How do you explain the rise of Christianity? How do you explain that the earliest um, Christians were, were Jews who used to worship and participate in the Jewish worship rite of Yahweh on Saturday, but because of the resurrection, they, they, they switched it to Sunday? Um, how, how do you explain these things? Um, camp out there, right? Because if Jesus is raised from the dead, um, then it is, like Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that, that Jesus is, through the spirit of holiness and power, he is declared the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. That is the very heart of Christianity, is that literally, God became a man and dwelt among us, and we saw him. And he, and he absorbed and took on your death so that he could give you his life. And that he defeated death by, by rising from the dead on the third day. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, if you place your faith in me, if you trust me, then you will live, even if you die. And so the hope for you, the hope for me, the hope for all of us who have, who have placed our faith in Jesus and in the fact that historically a man who lived in Palestine, modern-day Israel in Jerusalem, died under Roman um, crucifixion, and three days later he got physically, bodily, got out of the grave and was no longer dead. He was alive. He is alive. Right? Um, it's huge implications for you and me. Namely that um, you can experience life with God. Um, that when you physically die, Jesus, who is the first fruits of those who are alive from the dead, that he will raise you from the dead. That's why, when, that's why when Christian brothers and sisters die, we grieve because we love. We grieve because we love our friends. We grieve because we love our families, our loved ones. But we, don't, but we grieve with hope. Because truly, um, the, the resurrection tells us that it's not the end. Right? Someone dies, and, and I'm like, man, I'm, um, uh, death leaves a bad taste in your mouth, but Christ has defeated it. Right? Um, that, that he too will raise you from the dead and, and, that, and that we will um, fulfill what we were created for and that is to, um, to ultimately enter into the life of God for him to raise us from the dead so that we'll be with him forever. Um, that is the heart of Christianity. So as you defend your faith, as, as you defend the resurrection, um, just remember this is the central issue. And as you've heard us say tonight, the competing theories about what actually happened aren't that great. So just throw it out there and, and let it go. It's like, you know, somebody asked me, well, how do you defend the resurrection? I'm like, I don't need to defend it. It's like, it's like saying I need to defend a lion. No, I just need to unlock the cage. You know what I'm saying? So go unlock the cage for people um, and, and let the truth of what happened 2,000 years ago um, sink in um, to people's hearts. It will absolutely transform um, people's lives. It's transformed mine, um, and I pray it's transformed yours. All right? Hey, if y'all have other questions, come see us again next week. We'll be covering the problem of evil, so um, would definitely encourage you to come back and hear that one, and then in uh, two weeks for the last class, 
we'll be doing uh, what is marriage and, and should same-sex marriage be permitted. So if you, if you get stumped, email us at greatquestions at watermark.org uh, or have other questions. There you go. Y'all have a great night.